day, I was just told, it's the first Sunday of Advent, and there are no other Advent services, so off you go. Advent simply means arrival. Should be a pretty picture of some candles, Tim. Are we on there? I can't see because this screen isn't working. Anyway. Advent is traditionally the beginning of the church year. And we begin our year in anticipation. There we go. Advent is the hush in the theatre between the house lights going down and the curtain going up. And it's no coincidence that Advent happens at the time when light and life are fading. We're waiting. So the simple question is, what are we waiting for? Christmas? Just 23 shopping days left. Nothing you can do to slow it down or stop it coming. You can't avoid it and you can't escape it. You just have to accept it. Are you feeling stressed or excited? Are you aiming for the perfect family Christmas that Waitrose would like to tell you it's possible to have if only if you shop there? I wonder if it's a lonely time for you. Is it a time of love and family being together? Is it a time about thinking about food and decorations and parties and presents, about being picked and packed and wrapped and under the tree all prepared? Advent is very much about preparing to celebrate Christmas, waiting and watching for the coming Christ, remembering Jesus' birth, remembering God the Son coming to earth to live life as a man of flesh and blood. It's a real, concrete, tangible event scheduled in the calendar for 24 days' time. We can count down the days and see it coming. It can be exciting or frustrating, but it's definitely coming. And in this time of waiting for an expectancy of Christmas, we're reminded that God longs to be with his people. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That wasn't the first time in God's story that God was in amongst creation. At the very beginning of God's story, God dwells in the temple of creation and walks in the temple garden with the people. Now we've then got this idea that Eve sins and drags Adam down and the pure and holy God would be polluted by their presence so they have to be banished and punished and all their children after them would be so dirty that God could never look on them again. And do you know where that idea comes from? It's half a verse in Habakkuk. Your eyes are too holy to behold evil and you cannot look on sin. And the rest of that verse in Habakkuk basically says... So why do you? You are so pure that you cannot look on sin. So why do you? Why does a God so holy look on evil and sin? Why does God again and again come to live with his people? He visits and stops by a few times with a few folks. And then he tells Moses, let them make a sanctuary for me. 
and I will dwell among them. And after 15 chapters of very detailed instructions, which is pretty tedious if you're reading the Bible in the year, it says, Then Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and the altar and put up the curtain at the entrance to the courtyards. And so Moses finished the work. And then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God dwelt with his people like them in a tent. And when they were settled into a city, Solomon built the temple and God dwelt in, with his people in a building. When the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. And the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. Then Solomon said, the Lord had said that he would dwell in a dark cloud. I have indeed built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell forever. This isn't the kind of God who is too holy to be with his creation, his people. This is the God whose idea of holiness and perfect purity is to be born as a slimy, squishy, smelly baby, dwelling among his people in the most physical way possible. No longer an ethereal cloud of glory, but a vulnerable and burpy human being who sicked up milk on Mary's shoulder. We're waiting and anticipating and getting ready for the coming of God enfleshed, God incarnate. But Jesus didn't stay a baby. He grew up and lived to teach. I haven't been on the right slide, sorry. Lived to teach about a different way of living, a different way of thinking about belonging, a different way of being part of God's kingdom. And the establishment who thought that, he, that it was up to them to decide how people should live, who should belong, and who was excluded. And what God wanted. They didn't like it very much. So in fear, they executed him. But then Jesus had another lesson to teach. One about a different way about thinking about death and life and hope and the future. He was resurrected. And he lived again in a different way before leaving to be with God. There we go. And once he was with God, he had to leave to be with God to be able to give a different gift. Rather than God living with us as another human being, God wanted to more, dwell more closely. Do you not know, Paul writes to the Corinthians, that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? God lived in the garden and in the tabernacle and in the temple, in a single person, and now in each one of us. Advent means arrival. Last week, which was the last week of the church year, was Christ the King Sunday. We begin by the anticipation of the coming Christ as a baby named Jesus, and we end our year celebrating Christ on the throne alongside God the Father. But God's story doesn't finish there. We're also waiting for Christ to return. A second anticipation of a second Advent watching and waiting for the coming Christ. We know exactly how many days it is till Christmas, 
It's much harder to wait for something when you don't know how long you're going to be waiting for. The first disciples thought it would be in their lifetime, and then they died. Some 80 generations later, we are still waiting. It's a time of hoping without knowing, which we're not very good at. Richard Raw says this, Not knowing or uncertainty is a kind of darkness that many people find unbearable. Those who demand certitude out of life will insist on it even if it doesn't fit the facts. Logic and truth have nothing to do with it. If you require certitude, you will surround yourself with your own conclusions and dismiss or ignore any evidence to the contrary. The very meaning of faith stands in stark contrast to this mindset. We have to live in exquisite, terrible humility before reality. In this space, God gives us a spirit of questing, a desire for understanding. In some ways, it is like learning to see in the dark. We can't be certain of what's in front of us, but with some time and patience, our eyes adjust and we can make the next right move. Scriptures, he says, do not offer rational certitude. They offer us something much better, an entirely different way of knowing, an intimate relationship, a dark journey, a path where we must discover for ourselves that grace, love, mercy, and forgiveness are absolutely necessary for survival in an uncertain world. You only need enough clarity to know how to live without certitude. Yes, we really are saved by faith. This seeking for certainty has left us with some very funny ideas about the second coming. The problem is the Bible doesn't really tell us very much, and what it does say is kind of ambiguous. It's this weird kind of language which is trying to explain something like a dream, You just run out of words and nothing you can say really describes the weirdness going on. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their gods. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne says, I am making everything new. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. We're waiting, anticipating a different kind of God living with us. We're waiting for a second arrival the new heaven and the new city where God dwells fully with his people, not in a new temple, some kind of with but separated from, but fully available to us. We're waiting for heaven to come down to earth. And this isn't the hope of heaven meaning an other place 
where God will fix it and make it all right. Some disembodied floaty void where everything is perfect and shiny on a cloud. The hope of heaven is resurrection, bodily, here on earth, with God fully present. And trying to explain it or predict it or define it is asking the wrong kind of question. On being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. Nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. What did he teach us to pray? Our Father in heaven, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We currently live in this paradoxical now but not yet glimpse of God's kingdom. And we're waiting for the full coming of the kingdom of God. But the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven has already begun. This is what the beautifully eloquent eloquent and much-missed Rachel Held Evans had to say. Christians have been obsessed with the afterlife for centuries. From weird, teeming landscapes in Bosch's triptychs to Michelangelo's glorious tones of light and flesh and sky. Artists have spent ages trying to capture the horror and splendor of the afterlife of popular imagination. Dante envisioned nine concentric circles of hell where the damned are tortured in accordance with their sin, a mountain of purgatory that had seven terraces corresponding to the seven deadly sins, and nine celestial spheres of heaven. Today, books describing near-death experiences that include first-hand encounters with bright lights and beautiful music, hellfire and the scent of sulfur soar to the bestseller list. It hasn't always been this way. In fact, the writers of the Jewish scriptures, details concerning the afterlife were murky. Solomon wrote that the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, and even the memory of them is forgotten. Job knew that only after death, the wicked cease from their turmoil and the weary are at rest. He later asked, if a man dies, will he live again? Although David claimed that God would redeem him from the power of death, he had no promise of mansions, pearly gates, or a crystal sea in return for faithfulness. For the children of Israel, the essence of religion was experiencing God to the fullest during their lifetime, not merely preparing for the next. Sometimes I try to imagine what my life would be like if I'd grown up assuming that I could experience God only within the parameters of this present world. I wonder if I would look more closely for him in the simple, everyday things. If I would ask more questions and search harder for answers. If I would be seized by a sense of wonder and carpe diem. If I would live more deliberately and love more recklessly. By the time Jesus came along, most Jews had embraced the concept of resurrection. And by this, they envisioned a physical resurrection of the body, not some floating away of disembodied soul. Most anticipated the resurrection of God's people into a future kingdom of justice and peace. Jesus didn't say much to change his perspective. 
However, his own resurrection provided a powerful, tangible example of the future bodily resurrection of all. A phenomenon the Apostle Paul described as the first fruits of all who have fallen asleep. In other words, Jesus set the stage for what was to come. Consequently, the focus of the early church was not on the state of one's soul immediately after death, but on rather on the preparation for a new kingdom here on earth, a kingdom that Jesus had embodied and talked about and shown them how to create, a kingdom to which God's people would someday be resurrected, a kingdom in which the veil between the physical world and the spiritual world would evaporate to make every space a thin space. The seeds of this kingdom were already being planted among the poor, the peacemakers, the merciful, the gentle. And one day, Jesus would return to bring it to fruition. N.T. Wright, then the Bishop of Durham, has written extensively on this subject. and His books were influential in helping Rachel make her rethink her approach to heaven. In Surprised by Hope, he writes, God's kingdom in the preaching of Jesus, refers not to a post-mortem destiny, nor to our escape from this world to another one, but God's sovereign rule coming on earth as it is in heaven. Heaven in the Bible is not a future destiny, but the other hidden dimension to our ordinary life. God's dimension, if you like. God made heaven and earth, and at last he will remake both and join them together forever. According to Wright, participants in the early church understood that the ultimate goal wasn't to die, leave their bodies behind and float around like ghosts in heaven forever, but rather to embody, anticipate and work towards a new kingdom. What happened to a person in between death and resurrection remained a bit of a mystery. Although the Apostle Paul assured his followers of his fellow Christians, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. N.T. Wright made me wonder if perhaps I'd missed the point. Perhaps being a Christian isn't about experiencing the kingdom of heaven someday, but about experiencing the kingdom of heaven every day. In Advent, we wait and watch for the coming Christ. And as we watch for God returning to be with us and with creation in a different way, are we also watching for God's kingdom here and now, already at work, changing lives and bringing hope into our present situation? I wonder if I would look more closely for him in the simple, everyday things. If I would ask more questions and search harder for answers. If I would be seized by a sense of wonder and carpe diem. If I would live more, reckless, uh, live more deliberately and love more recklessly. Advent is a time of waiting. The question is, what are we waiting for? I'm going to ask John to play, um, and we're just going to have some time just to think about those questions um, before we sing again. <laughs> 